Well, the, uh, the nor- normal pattern of the Christian life. Uh, and once, once we become Christians, will we continue to sin? Uh, we continue to, to, to fight against sin for the remainder of our lives. And the, the normal pattern is to, uh, when we do sin, how do we handle it? Uh, we confess and we, we ask for uh, forgiveness. So I, I appreciate uh, Bruce uh, being willing to, uh, to address things uh, this morning. And I just appreciate his, his character and his uh, uh, quest for, uh, to, to be a man uh, above reproach uh, and to live a consistent life. So I'm, I'm very thankful uh, for Bruce and his, his willingness to, to have that conversation uh, this morning. But uh, I would invite you all to uh, open up uh, in your copy of God's Word to Psalm uh, 21. And uh, we, we are kind of uh, resuming our, our study uh, in, in the, the Psalter after uh, several weeks uh, away. Uh, and uh, if you've ever been out and about and seen an unusual sign or an unusual rule uh, somewhere, uh, I always like to say there is a reason for every rule and for every warning that you see. Why is there a warning not to put a, a hair dryer in the, the tub? Well, because at some point somebody tried to dry their hair uh, while in, in the tub. Uh, on uh, on certain street intersections in uh, London, there there are words written on the ground uh, of the the crosswalk, uh, and it says "Look left." And there's a big arrow pointing to the left, and and that's a very important sign uh, for Americans visiting London because we are used to a different traffic pattern, right? Uh, we, we are used to when we first step out into the street, where do we look? We look for cars coming. Uh, from immediately from our left because they drive on the right side of the road uh, and then when we kind of are out in the middle of the street where do we look uh, to our right because that's where cars will be coming from but it's backwards over there uh, and so uh, we, we need to look actually uh, to the right immediately but then in the middle of the intersection what would we tend to do continue to expect cars coming from this way when they're actually coming from the opposite direction uh, and so the uh, the brits have decided that they need to to make a sign uh, for us uh, novice uh, london pedestrians uh, and it's a a warning uh, to initiate uh, us americans but it also serves as a helpful reminder uh, to those who have been there before don't forget uh, there are cars coming when you step out into the street and you need to look uh, and Psalm 21 is going to, to serve in much the same capacity. It's going to uh, instruct and initiate us, but it's also going to serve as a reminder uh, of where we need to look and when we need to look uh, throughout our journey uh, through difficult circumstances of life. Uh, psalm 21 is uh, one of uh, what's known as the, the royal psalms that deal with uh, the king of Israel uh, and his interaction uh, with and uh, his relationship with God. Uh, and this psalm is connected with uh, Psalm 20, uh, which we actually studied uh, last uh, summer. Uh, and Psalm 20, if you remember that far back, uh, pictured a nation in distress. Uh, the, the setting of that psalm uh, is that in the day of distress, uh, the, the king is getting ready for battle. And it's not a day of distress when the king goes out to conquer. It's a day of distress uh, when there's an invading army coming into the land and the king has to summon the army uh, for defense. Uh, and that's what we saw in Psalm 20. In Psalm 20, uh, what was uh, the people of Israel gathering together uh, and preparing for the king to march out in battle to defend the nation. And actually, I want to read that psalm. It's just nine verses, uh, kind of in preparation for what we're going to look at in Psalm 21 today. Psalm 20 uh, begins as a psalm of David. It says, May Yahweh answer you in the day of distress. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. 
And may he, set you, may he send you help from the sanctuary and uphold you from Zion. And may he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offering acceptable. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. And we will sing for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May Yahweh fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that Yahweh saves his anointed and he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of Yahweh our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Yahweh. May the king answer us in the day we call. And so in that psalm, the congregation is preparing to send out the king before the the battle. And uh, the people are praying for God to work through the the human uh, leader, the king. uh, And yet they also profess an absolute trust in the Lord. I love verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But where do the people of God place their trust? In the name of Yahweh, our God. And so they ask Yahweh to hear them and help them. And Psalm 21 is the sequel to Psalm 20. It's a a royal psalm of thanksgiving in which King David and the people are thanking God for answering their prayer. They prayed as the king went out to defend the nation that God would bring them victory. And guess what God did? Uh, He brought them victory. So now as uh, the king returns, uh, they want to offer up uh, praise and thanksgiving and rejoice in the deliverance that God has brought about for them. Now, if you look with me again at uh, Psalm 21, uh, it says, For the choir director, uh, a psalm of David. O Yahweh, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire. And you have not withheld the request of his lips, for you meet him with the blessings of good things. And you set a crown of fine gold on his head. And he asked life of you, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. And his glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow upon him, for you make him most blessed forever. And you make him joyful with gladness in your presence. For the king trusts in Yahweh, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. Yahweh will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth, and their seed from among the sons of men. And though they intended evil against you and devised a scheme, they will not succeed. For you will make them turn their back, and you will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. Be exalted, O Yahweh, in your strength, and we will sing praise. Sing and praise your might. Let's just pause and and pray. Oh, Yahweh, we we read of your victory here in Psalm 20 and Psalm 21. 
We, we thank you and praise you for the deliverance uh, that you brought about for David and the, the people of Israel so many years ago. And we pray that you uh, would bless and guide our study of your word this morning, that you would help us to behold uh, mighty and wonderful things uh, in these two psalms, and that you would uh, teach us and instruct us uh, through the proclamation of your word now, and that you would increase our worship and draw us nearer to you. Uh, and we ask for your blessing, your guidance, by the power of your spirit and in the name of your son. Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, as we as we study this psalm, which is uh, in response to a, a battle, uh, you know, close to 3000 years ago, uh, what does it have to say? What does it have to instruct us in the, the 21st century? Well, I would say that it gives us uh, patterns to follow. It's going to, to teach us uh, how to think about our past, present, and future deliverances. And it's going to, to teach us and instruct not in clear commands of thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that. Uh, but what it's going to do is it's going to uphold for us uh, three examples uh, that are shown to us in these verses. We are to, to learn by looking at these three examples uh, and to uh, begin to, to follow after uh, these patterns. God is going to, to hold up for us uh, how the faithful have responded to him in the past. Uh, and then we are going to be commanded uh, to follow in their footsteps. Even as we looked at the, uh, in the Q&A this morning, the, the Old Testament wasn't written to us, but it was written for our instruction. First uh, Corinthians 10 and Romans 15. But uh, the, uh, these uh, three examples, the first is found uh, in verses 1 through 6. Uh, and this first example is of remembering God's past deliverances. Now, uh, verse 1 begins by directly addressing God with his covenant name, uh, Yahweh. We we are told that uh, the king uh, rejoices uh, in the strength of Yahweh, not in his own strength, not in what uh, the human king is able to do. uh, But David uh, is rejoicing in what God uh, is able to do and what he has done. And he rejoices in the salvation and the deliverance uh, that God has brought about in these circumstances. And then... Now, in verse 2, uh, we see this connection uh, with verse or Psalm 20. If you uh, caught uh, what uh, took place uh, back in uh, Psalm 20, verse 4. Now, what was the, the prayer and the petition of the people? Uh, May he, God, grant you, the king, your heart's desire. Well, if the king is marching out to battle, what is his heart's desire at that point in time? Probably to big, be victorious uh, and then return home safely. Right. That, that is the, the king's desire as you march out. And then what does it say in verse two of Psalm 21? It says you have given him his heart's desire. Uh, Yahweh has responded to the, the king's uh, prayer and the people's hope. Uh, and he has brought the king and his army back uh, safely. Uh, and so we see this, these connections between these two psalms. Uh, and uh, the, the prayer of uh, Yahweh has or the prayer of the people has been answered. Uh, and I realized as I was reading verse two, I skipped uh, that last little uh, word, Selah. And in the, in the Psalms, that is, a, uh, that is an, an indicator that we are to, to pause and to, to meditate. Uh, the, the author of the Psalm is, is wanting to get us there and says, hey, hold, hang out here for a second. Uh, and what's interesting is, uh, well, what does he want us to think about here? Well, he wants uh, to, to bring us to the point and say, God has answered the prayer uh, of the people. And stop and think about that. And there, back in Psalm 20, uh, the first three verses are the, the people's petition 
to God on behalf of the king. And at the end of uh, verse 3, you see another selah, a pause. So we, we are to, uh, to pause and think about the prayer that was offered up back in Psalm 20. And we are called to pause and think about how God answered that prayer uh, in Psalm 21. And then verses 3 and 4 show that Yahweh has approved King David, uh, blessing him with victory and the spoils of war. Does you meet him with the blessings of good things and you set a crown of fine gold on his head. And, and the emphasis uh, there in, in verse three is not so much on the crown of gold, but the emphasis is upon the one who is uh, placing and rewarding uh, with that crown of gold. The emphasis is more upon the Lord being the rewarder uh, of King David than it is upon the spoils of war that uh, David won. Uh, and so uh, the king is uh, approved and rewarded by God. Uh, but then in verse 4, it, it says that he, speaking of the king, asked life of you and you gave it to him. But then it says something interesting in that, in that third line. It says, length of days forever and ever. Uh, and it seems like what, what is being said here is even more and, and above and beyond uh, the king just saying, hey, can I survive this battle? Uh, and this is reminiscent and it's drawing upon other covenant promises that God has made uh, to King David. Uh, if you if you want to stay here, you can. But I would invite you over to Second uh, Samuel uh, chapter seven, a very key passage uh, in the life of David and really in the entire Old Testament, because in Second Samuel seven, uh, we have uh, David uh, trying to, to get ready to build a, a temple for God. He says, God, I want to build uh, a house for you. Uh, and David actually goes uh, to Nathan, uh, the prophet. He says, hey, is it OK if I build uh, a house for God? And Nathan says, go for it. Uh, and then uh, God gives Nathan a vision uh, in the night. He says, well, wait a second. Uh, and uh Yahweh tells David, actually, you shouldn't build a house for me, but I will build a house for you, a different kind of house. And if you look at uh, 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12, this is uh, God's promise to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will reprove him with the rod of men and the strikes from the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not be removed from him, as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you." And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. So, so David is uh, looking back at what he prayed, but he's saying God has gone so far above and beyond just preserving uh, David through one battle. God has promised to preserve uh, David and his house for all of eternity, to, to give him a, a, an established kingdom uh, that lasts forever. Uh, and then in verses 5 and 6, uh, we have uh, an acknowledgement uh, that David really is glorified because uh, Yahweh uh, brought the victory. It says, His glory, speaking of the king, is great through your, Yahweh's, salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow uh, upon him. So David's glory is not his own. Uh, David's glory is only that which has been given to him by God. Uh, and uh, indeed, God has elevated David uh, above every other uh, 
person. Jesus, uh, the Messiah, comes through the line of David. And so David has this elevated position, but notice he doesn't rejoice in his elevated position. Verse 6 says, For you make him most blessed forever, and you make him joyful with gladness in your presence. So you see, David's not boasting and, and rejoicing because God has elevated him over uh, others. He, he's rejoicing just in being in relationship with God. Uh, th- that is what David uh, enjoys, uh, his relationship. His, uh, he rejoices in the presence of God, God being with him. Uh, and this, uh, in verses 1 through 6, uh, this is an example of remembering God's past deliverances. Uh, and it serves like a, a really big, giant arrow uh, showing us how to look backwards, how to look to the left uh, and see God's hand of blessing and deliverance. Uh, and, and this is an example of how we are to uh, regularly offer back up to God uh, prayer and praise uh, specifically. Right. So Mother's and Mother's Day and Father's Day in the in the recent past, in the last couple of months, when you wrote a card uh, to your, your mother or father, to your spouse, uh, did you write in generalities or in particulars? Right. Do you say, hey, mom, I'm thankful that you do stuff. Right. Now, general generalities are good. Right. That'll get you in trouble. Just guys, if you write that card to your wife that uh, you'll have other conversations later. Uh, and uh, uh, wives, as you were writing a card to your to your husbands or to your father, when you when you were giving thanks uh, for who they are, and what they have done, did you use generalities or did you use specifics? Now, now generalities are good. Right. You can express thankfulness for who they are and just say what what you do. But specifics are far better. Right. Amen. Specifics are far, far greater. Uh, And David takes the time in this psalm to give thanks to God for a very specific deliverance, for a very specific answer to his prayers. Says God, I I prayed specifically uh, for deliverance in this situation and you have specifically uh, redeemed me and saved me. Uh, And there is a, a discipline here and something that we need to learn from this. Even back in Joshua chapter 12, uh, Joshua took the time uh, to list out every single king, every single city that the people of Israel conquered uh, when they went into the promised land. Now, now you looked at that and you probably read that chapter with joy, right? You're like, oh, I love lists in scripture. Uh, And you probably read through that really, really fast. But did you think about why did Joshua take the time to list out every single city? And every single king that the Lord granted them victory over. He says 31 in all. Uh, He he was being specific. And so that the people of Israel would be able to rejoice and offer up praise and thanksgiving to God for each and every one of those victories. Particular deliverances deserve particular thanks. But if we're honest, we only have particulars if we have been regularly in prayer. If we are regularly in prayer to God, lifting up our daily concerns to him, then you have lots of small situations that you've been praying about. And you've probably seen a lot of small answers to prayer. Sick kids, work conflicts, marriage conflicts, big decisions, provisions both in in big and small ways. And being particular in our prayers will help us to be particular in our praises. But a lack of prayer will also lead to a lack of praise. If you've been praying about nothing, what do you have to offer back up to God? 
You, you have no specifics to offer back up to God because you haven't really been praying about anything specific. Uh, but, but here we have a challenge. And I would ask, when was the last time that you had a particular prayer that you had lifted up to God and you have seen it particularly answered? And if you can think of one easily, uh, have you given God particular praise for that answer to prayer? And have you written down both your prayer and your praise so that you are building a record of God's faithfulness? And we read about that back in, in Joshua 4. It says, So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, as they're uh, crossing over the Jordan River into the Promised Land, he said, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. And my hope is that one day your children ask you, say, Mom, or they say, Dad, what are all of those journals up there on the shelf? What do those mean to you? And you say, those are the record of God's faithfulness. To me and to our family. Those aren't just uh, meaningless scribbles. Uh, that is his tangible graces that we have seen in our lives. This is where we were close to, to not having money to pay the electric bill. And the Lord provided. This is where uh, we almost couldn't pay the car bill. This is where uh, you were sick and the Lord answered our prayer. See, those types of stories, that's what your children need. Answers to particular prayers uh, and particular praises that you have offered back up to God because he has answered. Amen. This psalm teaches us through this example of remembering God's past deliverances. But then we see there's a, a second example of uh, trusting God in the present. This is in verse seven. Verse seven really is the central verse of this psalm. It builds a bridge from the, the first half to the latter half. And this is what it says. For the king trusts in Yahweh, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. See, why does the king rejoice in God's presence? Back in verse 6. No, why does the king feel that way? Why does it bring him joy and jubilation? Well, it's because uh, he trusts in Yahweh. God is the object of the king's trust. Uh, and additionally, Yahweh's covenant faithfulness, which is a recurring theme in the Psalms. God's covenant keeping his steadfast love secures the king so that he will never be shaken, that he will never be staggered. And again, David has in mind the covenant promises that were made to him back in what we read in 2 Samuel 7. And these promises are recounted later on. I'll invite you, you to, to turn with me to Psalm chapter 89. These are a, a focal point. This is an, an important concept 
in the Old Testament that God has made promises to King David. And he will fulfill every one of those promises. If you look at Psalm 89, beginning in verse 24, it says, My faithfulness, this is God speaking, My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. Speaking of David. And in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. And he will call to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. And so I will set up his seed to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. And if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they profane my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with striking. But... I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not profane, nor will I alter what comes forth from my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon. And the witness in the sky is faithful. God doesn't mince any words here. What does he say? Will he change his mind about David? He's promised one thing. Is he going to say, oh, you know what, David, you, one of your descendants kind of disobeyed a little bit. So now I'm cutting you off completely. God says, no, he is going to keep his steadfast loving kindness to David because he has promised it. And what we see here in verse 7 is kind of two sides to a covenant relationship. God's role in the covenant uh, is that he will remain faithful. He's made promises and he's going to stick to them. What's our role in a covenant with God? Uh, We are to trust. God has made the promises. We don't have to make promises. We have to trust in the character of God and in uh, the truthfulness and trustworthiness of his promises. That's what we are called to do. God is faithful. We are called to faith, not to believe in him. John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, watched cancer slowly and painfully kill his wife over a period of several months. And in recounting those days, John Newton writes this. says, I believe it was about two or three months before her death when I was walking up and down the room offering disjointed prayers from a heart torn with distress. And then a thought suddenly struck me with unusual force to this effect. The promises of God must be true. Surely the Lord will help me if I am willing to be helped. It occurred to me that we are often led from an undue regard of our feelings to indulge that unprofitable grief which both our duty and our peace require us to resist to the utmost of our power. He says, I instantly said aloud, Lord, I am helpless indeed in myself, but I hope I am willing without reserve that thou should help me. If I might paraphrase what what John Newton discovered there, he realized that God will be faithful and that he just needed to trust that God would be faithful. 
He was convinced of God's part of the covenant relationship, and he needed to work on his part of that covenant relationship. He realized that he needed to trust in God. And Newton went on to describe what a remarkable change this brought to his final months with his wife. And his trust in God strengthened and established him so that he was not shaken, even as she went to be with the Lord. And so David is writing of the stability that results from trusting in God's covenant love. And David is not the only one in a covenant relationship with God. You and I uh, are called, commanded to trust in the promises of God. But what, what are the promises of God that we have as participants in the new covenant? Uh, everybody who has looked to Jesus in faith is a participant uh, in the, the new covenant promises. But what are those promises? I'll list a few of them here. Begin with the promise of regeneration. Uh, that God promises that if you look to Him in faith, uh, that there is a regeneration of your heart. Uh, that God will impart spiritual life to you that you could not give to yourself. There's the promise of justification. That all who look to Jesus Christ in faith uh, are declared righteous uh, and are completely forgiven. Uh, the debt of sin that you owed to God has been completely removed and completely paid for. There's the promise of adoption. That God brings us into his family, uh, adopting us as his own children. Uh, and he assures us that we have an imperishable inheritance in heaven. There's the promise of sanctification. That God promises to rescue us from the power of sin. And that he will strengthen us so that we can grow to become more and more like Christ. There's the promise of glorification. Where God promises that those who believe in Christ will be resurrected one day from the dead. Uh, that we will have an imperishable body and that we will have eternal life with Jesus in heaven. There's the promise of provision, that God promises to care for his children. Uh, Matthew 6:33. what are we to seek first? His kingdom and his righteousness. And then all of these other things, all of these cares and concerns in this world uh, will be added to us according to our need. And there's the promise of preservation, that God promises that he will preserve and care for his children through any and every circumstance in this life. Romans eight thirty five to 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing uh, in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And in this verse here, Psalm 21, verse 7, we have an example of what it looks like to trust God in the present. Now, whether your country is being invaded, as David's was, or whether you are uncertain about the stability of your job uh, or uh, your food supply or how to pay for college or how to fill up your tank with gas. You are called to trust in the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh. And then trusting God is not a matter of feelings. That's usually what we make our decisions based upon, right? Well, I don't feel like I can trust God right now. No, we don't act upon feelings. We act upon faith. And what we see here is that a memory of the past creates trust in the present that leads to peace about the future. 
Now that, that's where if you're wrestling with a situation and you're not sure if God will answer your prayers and, and help you and aid you in this moment of need, if you have that long bookshelf of record where you have all of your prayer requests and all of God's answers, uh, that serves as a reminder. Uh, and that memory of the past helps you in the present uh, and leads to greater peace in the future. Now, that's what we see here. As I said, uh, verse 7 is this, uh, this centerpiece of the psalm, and it bridges from the first uh, portion to the last portion. Uh, and in this uh, third example, in verses 8 through 13, now we have, we have an example uh, of anticipating God's uh, future triumph. If you look again at these verses, uh, th- these were some uh, verses that have very strong language. And David is looking forward to how God will deal with every one of his enemies uh, down the road. And David envisions the hand of God searching out and finding all of his enemies. If you look at verse 8, your hand will find all of your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. Uh, and then uh, we have th- these, uh, these depictions and, and these pictures of uh, how God is going to, to bring judgment upon his enemies. That God will, will make them as a fiery oven. That they will be swallowed up by his wrath. That they will be completely destroyed from the earth. And they will have no descendants uh, among men. Uh, and this is, this is very strong language. And usually we find this shocking, right? 21st century Americans, this is... Does, does God really have enemies? I thought he loved everybody. Well, look at verse 11. Though they intended evil against you and devised a scheme, they will not succeed. Then in verse 12, speaks of God will, will cause them to turn back. They, they will flee from him as he aims his bow uh, directly at them. Again, popular theology in our own time uh, would say really that there is no God. Uh, But if somebody is willing to acknowledge God's existence, uh, what type of a God are they usually willing to acknowledge? And one one who who is completely without judgment uh, and and who will accept uh, all people. Now, God will accept all people. That that is true. But but he requires faith. He requires them to to trust and look to his son, Jesus, in faith. Uh, And what we what we see here. Now, is that uh, that theology that that God is all love all the time that works well uh, when, when there's no army coming in and invading your country, right? Uh, that works well uh, when uh, th- there is not a severe, severe injustice uh, coming into your land. Then, when you are experiencing great injustice, what is it that you want? Is that when you're thinking, well, oh, God loves all people the same? What is it you're wanting in that moment? Just think about when the last time you had an argument with somebody, let alone great injustice. What is it you're wanting in that moment when someone sins against you? Yeah, you want them to be judged. People in the Ukraine right now, they want justice. An army is coming and invading and bombing and shelling. Christians in West Africa, always on the alert against kidnapping, persecution. It's a completely different uh, experience than what we have here and now. And in such circumstances, it is right, and what we see here, it is indeed proper to pray for and anticipate God's dealing righteously 
with those who have plotted against him and against his people. In their book, uh, By Their Blood, James and, and Marty Hefley record an incident that took place in the Belgian Congo in 1964. At that point in time, there was a group of communist rebels known as the Simbas who were committing atrocities throughout the country, but especially against the church. And one Sunday, the Simbas imposed themselves in the worship service of the African Inland Church in Bunia. And one of them stood up and began to, uh, to praise the rebel leaders. And after the, the people had endured this, the, the pastor uh, asked one of their, the congregants, Miss uh, Fetinia Papalaskalis, to lead in prayer. She was the daughter of a Greek man and a Congolese woman. Uh, and as such, she would have been particularly despised by the rebels. And so she stood and she prayed in front of these gun-toting revolutionaries. Listen to her prayer. She said, Lord, we ask you to help us in our hour of great need. You know that Congo is in need of you at this time. You know that we have evil men who have come into our area recently. Many of them are thieves and murderers. They beat and kill our people for no reason. Lord, judge these evil men. Bring your wrath down on these terrible men. Put the fear of God into them. Save us from these people and bring us peace and freedom. Once more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. She sat down and everybody in the church is looking at her with awe. To pray that prayer with the revolutionaries there in the back. Afterwards, the pastor got up and preached. And after he gave the, the closing prayer, the, those uh, revolutionaries got up and they left. One pastor called this, this reality of God's future judgment of all of his enemies. He calls it the, the dark side of the kingdom. But this is one of the implications in how Jesus even taught us to pray. What did he say in Matthew 6? How are we to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Part of the kingdom of God coming to uh, the earth means that God will rule and reign over every human kingdom. Uh, that God's kingdom uh, will uh, crush all of those in opposition to him. The Heidelberg Catechism makes this clear. One of its questions, it says that part of what we are praying when we pray thy kingdom come is that God would destroy the devil's work, that God would destroy every force which revolts against him, and that every conspiracy against God's word would be thwarted. And if God's kingdom would be established, his enemies must be judged. And that prayer is a prayer, thy kingdom come, is a prayer against everything and everyone who opposes God. And this gets lost in the shuffle of our thinking all too often. Uh, this is where we've been discipled by the world. Uh, and, and we forget about the, the need and the reality uh, of God's justice. But, but David draws our attention to it here and many other places in the Psalms. Uh, and since the, the Psalter is the divinely inspired hymn book of God's people, we would do well to be instructed by the example that we see here of anticipating God's triumph in the future. And that there are times when it is appropriate to pray for, for God to 
uh, address evil, for, for God to address injustice in this world. And we would expect a God who is just and righteous uh, to deal with sin righteously. And yet we can also thank him for extending mercy. And here's something to keep in mind uh, as we pray for uh, God's justice uh, to fall upon others. Right. Uh, But for his grace, we would be among those uh, who need his justice, who would experience his wrath. The only thing uh, separating and distinguishing us from receiving God's wrath is what Christ has done. And we need to keep that in mind. Uh, and we need to leave God uh, to do the revenging, uh, to do the avenging, uh, not taking vengeance into our own hands, but lifting it up in prayer. Uh, and again, this, this highlights the beauty and the power of God's invitation to sinners. That while we were enemies of God, he sent his son to live and die and rise again for us. So we would, as enemies would be brought into uh, reconciliation, that we would be adopted into his family. The beauty of the gospel. And this this psalm serves as a reminder of that. And serves as a reminder by way of these three examples. To remember God's deliverances in the past. To trust God's covenant faithfulness in the present. And to anticipate God's triumph in the future. Uh, There's a song that we sang a couple weeks back at camp. That encapsulates all of these truths very well. It's by H.G. Spafford. Uh, It is well with my soul. Some of you are familiar with that, uh, that great hymn. Some of you know that the story behind that hymn. Uh, and that H.G. Spafford wrote that hymn as he was crossing the Atlantic Ocean. And he wrote it in the, the precise spot where uh, his wife and daughters drowned in a shipwreck. And he's recounting the Lord's faithfulness to him even through tremendous loss. Uh, the first two verses show... Uh, that H.G. Spafford was also choosing to trust God in the present uh, through those circumstances. Verse 1 of that hymn says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. But there's a line in verse 4, the last verse in that, uh, that hymn, the Lord, and Lord, haste the day when the, the faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Spafford uh, finishes the hymn looking where? Looking to and anticipating that future return of Christ. But did you catch he adds two little words in that final uh, stanza? Just before it is well in that last hymn, what does he say? He says, even so. Now, why would he need to say even so in speaking about the return of the Lord? What is he keeping in mind? That when the Lord returns, he's going to set all things straight. And that's going to be partially a time of rejoicing, but it's also going to be a time of judgment. And when the kingdom of God comes, that has big implications. And we are to, to pray for it and long for that day. But there's also a big implication that, that we need to go and proclaim. And we need to go out and, and proclaim to others the message of Christ. That, that Christ is one day going to return. And he's going to, to judge, uh, to rule and reign on this earth. And there is no refuge from him. There's only refuge in him. So look to him in faith. 
And that's what we see. That's what we are reminded of over and over again in the Psalms. We are to look to God, uh, how He has delivered us in the past. We are to trust Him continually, evermore in the present. And that gives us hope uh, to trust in Him and to have peace about the future. Uh, Anyone have anxiety this week? Right? Just a little bit. Read the news stories. There's a few news stories out there that are disconcerting. Right? Wait, are there any good news stories? If you find a good news story, send it my way. I'm, uh, I'm tired of looking at the overwhelming ones. Uh, but this is what we need to keep in mind. Uh, is God able to care for and provide for his people? What was that? Yeah, he is. Amen. How do we know that he is able to care for and provide for his people? How do we know that he is able to uh, work in and through every circumstance and to deliver us from whatever we face here and now? Because... We have a record in our own lives, and we have the inspired Word of God, which uh, covers a much broader period of time than our own lives. Uh, It's a testament to God being faithful, not over uh, over a period of a single lifetime, uh, but generation after generation after generation after generation. Uh, And that's where we draw our strength and our comfort from. Uh, And that's why we look to Him in faith, trusting in Him no matter what we are facing. And even as... Bruce mentioned Shadrach, Meshach, uh, and Abednego. When they were told and shown that they would uh, either bow the knee to the the statue or go into the furnace, what did they say? They said, we won't do that. Our God will deliver us. But then they also said, we'll put a little asterisk on this. But even if he doesn't, we still won't. Even if God doesn't deliver us from those circumstances... What do we have waiting for us in heaven? An imperishable inheritance as his children, as his people. And let us look to and focus upon that. Because when uh, Christ returns in glory, we also will appear with him in glory. Amen?